Church, it's so good to be with you, particularly on this first Sunday of the new year. Um, This morning, we're going to begin about a seven-week series in the book of Genesis. We're calling this series Beginnings. Beginnings. There's a reason we're calling it Beginnings. It's because in Genesis, we find the beginning of many things. Next week, we're going to talk about the beginning of purpose. And then a few weeks from now, we'll see the beginning of sin and brokenness in this world. But today, we're going to look at this simple truth. It's the beginning of life. The beginning of life. If you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 1. But I want to make sure I put something in front of you before we read and before we dive into the message today. It involves our approach to not just the book of Genesis, but our approach to the, the whole of the Bible and how we're to study the Bible and how we're to interpret what we find here in the book of Genesis. You see, the chief purpose of Scripture is to teach us who God is, to teach us who God is and how we are to know him. Well, why is this particularly important involving the book of Genesis? You know, a lot of times we take the book of Genesis and we isolate it from the rest of the Bible. And we approach it um, completely separate from everything else that we find in Scripture. Why is that? It's because in recent days there's been a lot of controversy within our lifetimes involving the beginning of the earth. You know, for the first time, just a few centuries ago, scientists endeavored to understand the beginning of life. And we've seen the conflict between science and faith over and over again, particularly how it involves the book of Genesis. And what's happened as a result of that is we as people of faith, giving in to that particular battle, although it is important, I think so often we forget that the chief purpose of Scripture is to teach us who God is. And that holds true certainly in the beginning of Scripture. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to look in just a moment, and we're going to see that God teaches us that he is supremely powerful. All throughout chapter 1 on into chapter 2, we're going to see that God demonstrates his power over and over again. But then we're also going to see this. God demonstrates his goodness. His goodness. The goodness of his creation and ultimately the goodness of his character. Now, isn't it important that we understand that God created the heavens and the earth? Absolutely. That is a fundamental, paramount truth, foundational to our faith. I submit to you, church, that if we don't hold on to that miracle, how can we believe in the other miracles of Scripture? You see, the miracle of the resurrection has its foundations in a miraculous God. A God who does wonderful, unbelievable things. If we're going to believe the resurrection, we have to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I'm not shying away from controversy this morning. I'm not shying away from the difficulties related to interpreting this passage. All I challenge you with this morning is this. As we work through this first chapter of Scripture, as we work through the Bible together, in fact, Hold on to the chief aim of the Bible, to teach you who God is and how we are 
to know him and have relationship with him. With that in mind, I invite you to stand with me. Let's honor the reading of God's word in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse, verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blessing of your word. God, thank you for letting me drink deeply over this past week from this passage of scripture. Thank you, Lord, for the way it has, has held testimony in my own life, has shaped me, has challenged me, has drawn me closer to you. Lord, I pray that today you will do that same work in the life of our church. That every person listening, whether it's here in this sanctuary or online or later on, God, that your word will bear fruit in their lives. God, teach us who you are. Draw us closer to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Again, our aim this morning is to learn the character of God through his creative activity. You know, trust is really hard to come by these days. I think we would all agree that it's hard to trust people sometimes. You know, the brokenness of our culture and the relationships around us presents ample evidence of this truth. Our human relationships are fragile because they're often built upon a sort of Expectation that someone in the relationship is going to prove themselves untrustworthy. We see this in marriages. We see this in friendships and even within our churches, unfortunately. Guess what happens when we can't trust people? We cannot enjoy these relationships. We can't enjoy our friendships, our marriages, and the relationships with our church friends. We constantly might think that people are somehow out to get us or to deceive us and hurt us ultimately. I've encountered many people who have this outlook on life altogether. They can't trust anyone. Unfortunately, in many of these cases, this belief is warranted. Someone has proved themselves untrustworthy. Maybe you personally have experienced this in your own life, a broken relationship broken friendship, maybe the brokenness between a relationship of trust between you and the church. Maybe a church leader has even let you down. This is an unfortunate reality in our world. However, here's my caution to you, and this is where we begin to look deeply into the character of God. We cannot allow this measure of distrust to creep into and tarnish our relationship with God. We cannot allow the way that we don't trust other people to affect the way that we don't trust God. What does this have to do with the book of Genesis, particularly chapter 1 on into chapter 2? Well, context is really important, and I really want to make sure I set this up well and take my time with this. I promise we're going to get into the heart of the message, but I want to make sure you understand something clearly. Last week, we were in the book of Deuteronomy, and we talked about the context of that passage of Scripture. When we're studying the Old Testament, we really have to slow down and understand why it was written to begin with. 
We need to understand that we're not the first audience. We're not the first readers or hearers of this passage of Scripture. Just like last week when we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, we need to understand that the first readers and hearers of this Scripture were the children of Israel. We hold, I hold particularly to a, a view of Scripture, a view of the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote those first five books of the Bible. And he wrote them to the first audience of the children of Israel. So what did this mean to them? Again, last week as we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, it was important we understood that context because the children of Israel were going into the promised land. And Moses was sharing with God's people some last words. And he told them that you need to exclusively trust God so that you can instinctively obey him. When you're encountering other gods in the land that you're going into, you need to understand who your God is, that he is the one true God. That very same message is clear beginning in Genesis chapter 1. You see, God, through Moses, is telling his people, this is who I am. And what he's telling them is this. He's telling us this very same thing today. He's saying, I am worthy of your trust Because I am supremely powerful and I am perfectly good. And he demonstrates this through his creative activity. This is important for the children of Israel because of where they had been and the things they were going to experience in the days ahead. If you remember right, if you look back into the book of Exodus, there's the retelling of those events. Israel had been in slavery and bondage in Egypt. And they had encountered, listen carefully to this detail, they had encountered the foreign pagan gods of Egypt. They had seen the fickleness of these gods. They had seen the struggle within the Egyptian culture to appease these gods. And so as they came out of that slavery, as they crossed over the Red Sea, perhaps some of them were wondering, who is God? In light of what I've seen, who is he? We see them break this relationship of obedience over and over and over again. And I believe it's because they forgot these very simple truths. And so the call for us, just as it was the call for them then, is to trust the Lord and ultimately have peace with God because he's supremely powerful and perfectly good. So there's only two points to today's message The first one is this. We should have peace because God is supremely powerful. We should have peace because God is supremely powerful. I want to walk through the details of this creation account. And it may be a little bit dry at times, but I hope that you'll listen carefully to some things that really demonstrate the power and the awesomeness of God. There are five ways I see that God puts his power on display here in chapter 1 of the Bible. The first way is this. God's power is demonstrated by his preexistence. God's power is demonstrated by his preexistence. Look at verse 1 with me once again. We read there, In the beginning, God. Those few words convey a very profound truth that before anything else ever was, there was God. This is the foundational reality to our faith. Before there ever was an earth, 
before there ever was any human life or animal life or plant life, before anything else ever was, there was God. This has caused philosophers and theologians alike great difficulty debating the truth of these few words. But church, we have to stand upon the reality that before anything else ever was, there was God. His preexistence before anything else testifies to his awesome and supreme power. Why would this have been important to the children of Israel? As they're being reminded, just as we are, who God, of who God is. You see, the gods around the Israelites, the ones they would have been familiar with, would have been mutually dependent upon one another for their existence. The God of the sun, the God of the rain, the God of the sea, all of these various gods working together to somehow facilitate some obscure, difficult existence for people. But they depended on one another. And guess what God demonstrates beginning in verse 3. Notice this. Look at what happens there. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. You see, there's some difficulties surrounding this first act of creation. Because you notice that God had not created the sun or the moon or the stars. And yet there was light. How is this possible? It's because God is not dependent on anything or anyone else. He is supremely powerful. He is preexistent. And he doesn't depend on anything else for his existence. And so when he said there's going to be light... There was light. Notice this also. God's power is not just demonstrated through his preexistence. God's power is demonstrated through his miraculous means. His miraculous means. Notice the word created in verse 1 with me once again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This word created has special significance when you consider it in light of all of scripture. And it, the reason for that is this. It only is used in reference to God. No one else has this creative ability in the Bible. No other human, no other animal, no other little g God has this ability to create in the way that God created. He created everything that there is over the span of only six days with rest happening on the seventh day. As you work through this chapter, you see that on day one, like we looked at a moment ago, he creates light in verses three through five. On day two, he creates the atmosphere in verses six through eight. On day three, he creates the dry land and he creates vegetation. And that's seen in verses nine through 13. Day four, he creates the bearers of light. We know this to be the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, he creates the fish and the birds. And day six, land animals and human beings. God created all of that in a very unique way that only he could accomplish. This is a foundational truth to our faith. We are not called upon to understand how this happened. We are not called upon to somehow replicate this activity. Scientists have tried 
philosophers have meandered into the realm of theology to attempt to understand how God created everything. And yet, no proof is found. Why? Because no one else can do it. God uniquely and miraculously created everything that there is. What did this mean to the children of Israel? The gods around them, the ones they had been familiar with, had areas of specific dominion. Like I've noted a moment ago, the God of the sea or the God of the sun, the God of the rain, were responsible only for those areas of existence. They only had dominion regarding that activity. And yet God, from the first words of Scripture, says this, I am supremely ruler over everything. God's in charge. God is sovereign over all life and existence. Notice this also. God's power is, thirdly, demonstrated by his word. God's power is demonstrated by his word. Ten different times we read over the course of chapter 1, God said, and it was so. Four simple words that communicate a profound reality that when God said it, it happened. We don't know how it happened, but it happened. Kings that the children of Israel would have been familiar with, they would have issued decrees that demonstrated their kingship over particular kingdoms. We talked about this when we looked at the Christmas narrative. Remember that. We looked at how Caesar Augustus issued this decree that called upon everyone in the land to be registered so they could be taxed. And even that decree, remember this, rested under the sovereign hand of God because through that activity, through this powerful earthly ruler, God was still sovereign over everything that happened. You see, kings have power on this earth. This would have been understood by the children of Israel and by us. There was no checks and balances on this earth for earthly kings. And just as the same way for God, there is no checks and balances system for him either. He is supremely powerful. His word demonstrates this. He speaks it and it happens, we are told. You see, God's realm is not relegated just to a particular kingdom or area. God's power extends to the ends of the earth and all of life. Fourthly, notice this about God's power. God's power is demonstrated by his image. God's power is demonstrated by his image. If you look at verses 26 and 27 with me, you'll see this to be true. Notice what the word says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man, he says it again here, in his own image. He created him in the image of God. As if we didn't already understand what he was saying, he created them in his image, male and female. God wants this truth to be abundantly clear that mankind is uniquely created in his image. Why is this important concerning the character of God? 
You see, kings during that time would have created images to mark the expanse of their territory. They would have placed images all across the land to mark where they ruled. And it was limited to a specific area. We see that God tells mankind later to be fruitful and to multiply. He tells them to populate the earth. Why? Because through his image marked on the simple person of mankind, he marks his territory to the ends of the earth. He communicates clearly, again, that he is supremely powerful. That he is the sovereign king of this earth. You see how all of these simple details in this passage communicate this awesome reality. But lastly, concerning God's power, we see this. God's power is demonstrated by his completed work. God's power is demonstrated by his completed work. Look at chapter 2 in verses 1 through 3, what we see there. We read, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it, he rested from all his work of creation. There are a couple of things that are true from these three verses. Number one. I hope it's clear that God did this work. We've said this over and over and over again. It says there that he had done it several different times. But notice also that it was a complete work. It was finished. It was done. Everything is about to fall apart, we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3. Because of the sinfulness of humanity, this world is going to be broken. We're going to see from chapter 3 on through chapter 11, the profound brokenness of this earth put on plain display. I hope that you enjoy these first two chapters. They're really good. Things take a dark turn at chapter 3. But listen carefully. In spite of that brokenness, God is not rushing around trying to prepare for what's about to happen. He's not waiting for chaos to ensue. No, what is he doing? The picture is very clear. He's resting. He's resting because his work is done. It is complete. Now, if you've tuned me out up until this point, listen carefully to this. I want you to see Jesus in every bit of this. Watch this. Everything we have seen about God's power is ultimately demonstrated in the completed work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Remember, his power was put on display through his pre-existence. Let me remind you, friend, from John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was who? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus put on plain display. Notice also his power, remember, was demonstrated through his miraculous means. I reminded you at the very beginning of this sermon That the chief miracle in all of scripture is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has continued from chapter 1 and verse 1 of Genesis to continue working miracles throughout human existence. He continued this work through the person of Jesus, ultimately resulting in the miraculous event of his 
resurrection. Understanding the miraculous means of creation is foundational to understanding the miraculous means of the resurrection. Notice also his power put on display in his word. Remember that, the third truth concerning his power. Remember that Jesus, with a word, he calms the sea. Remember that Jesus, with a word, he forgives sin. It is by the power of his spoken word, these things happen. Jesus, his preexistence, his awesome, miraculous means, and his awesome word all testify to the supreme power of God. Notice also his image. Remember God's power on display here in his image through creating man in his image. Notice this also. Through the picture of his sacrificial death and resurrection, he effectively laid claim to your soul and its destiny. Choosing to follow him results in eternal life. Choosing not to results in eternal damnation. Listen carefully, church. His resurrection, his sacrifice on the cross, through the image of those events, he stakes claim to your life. And the choice is yours what to do with that. But remember his completed work. Just as God rested on the seventh day, notice what Jesus does. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 2. We read these words. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He is resting eternally in heaven. Why? Because his work is completed. His work has been done. His work is perfectly complete. Why? Because he is supremely powerful. Everything demonstrated ultimately through Jesus. So we can have peace because God is supremely powerful. He is in control and ultimately through the work of Jesus, he demonstrates himself to be sovereign. Over every event in history building to that moment, he demonstrates his design. But there is a second reason we can have peace today, church. It's not just because he's powerful. Notice this second reality. We should have peace because God is completely good. We should have peace because God is completely good. There are three ways in this chapter of scripture that God puts his goodness on display. The first way is this. God's goodness is evident in his creative order. God's goodness is evident in his creative order. Notice back in chapter 1 and verse number 2. There's a very simple phrase that communicates this. We read these words. Now the earth was formless and empty. The earth was formless and empty. This simple phrase lays a framework or a foundation for the way in which God goes about creating. Notice this with me. In the first three days, God addresses how the earth is formless. He addresses how the earth is formless. He creates these things, light, atmosphere, and dry land. All of these things happen to address the formlessness of the world. God has been intentional all along. His creation had great design. Notice in the second three days, he addresses this issue of emptiness. 
what does he do? He creates the bearers of light and also all living things. He fills the earth with all living things. God addresses the formlessness and the emptiness of the world through these activities. Listen to this. The children of Israel would have been familiar with gods who thrived on chaos. They would have understood that when a drought came, God deserved, or their God deserved particular attention. The worse the drought was, the louder they should pray and cry out. The greater the storm, the louder they better cry out. These gods thrived on chaos, and yet God demonstrates his goodness to them and to us through his order. Listen, church, it doesn't matter how chaotic this world may seem. It doesn't matter how out of control it may seem to get. God is still good and he is still in control. Nothing happens by accident or by chance because he's good. God's goodness is not just put on display through his order. Notice this also. His goodness is evident in his attentiveness. His goodness is evident in his attentiveness. Seven times God notes his creation as good or very good throughout chapter 1. But notice how he deemed it to be good. This is very important. Look at verse number 12 of chapter 1. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw, God saw that it was good. He was intentional to see what he had created. You see, he didn't just set things in motion and then turn to Bondi. No. He was absolutely attentive to everything happening in the world. We see throughout Scripture this testimony borne out that God is always watching. God sees heartache. He sees pain. He sees distress. Why? Because he is in touch with his creation. Listen, church, we don't worship a God who is detached from us or untouchable. We worship a God who is intimate with us and able to be reached. So God's goodness is evident in his attentiveness. The last way we see his goodness here is this. His goodness is evident in his blessing. It's evident in his blessing. The theme of blessing is going to come up over and over again throughout the book of Genesis. It is a prominent theme that we see here. Just here in chapter 1, we see blessing happen three different times. We see it in verse 22, verse 28, both of those in chapter 1, and then verse 3 of chapter 2. Each time God blesses them, listen carefully, he is giving us something to carry out. Some kind of activity. Be fruitful and multiply, he tells us and tells creation twice. And that last blessing is to rest. Now, we're going to talk about this more next week when we look at the purpose of creation. But for now, let it hold true in your heart and in your mind. Let this resonate with you. Every time God blesses, he gives us a responsibility. He gives us something to do and he blesses that activity. Church, this is put on vivid display in Jesus. 
this picture is clearly seen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Y'all probably get tired of me reading from this passage of scripture. You're going to know it by heart before long. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. We see Jesus give a blessing that carries with it great responsibility. You see, God blessed his creation for the purpose of furthering his kingdom on this earth. And notice what Jesus does at the end of his earthly existence. Jesus came near and he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Church, he is supremely powerful, which gives him this right. He tells us in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gives us his blessing. He gives us his commission. He says, I'm going to be with you, but you are to go and make disciples. Just as God said to populate the earth to further his kingdom, Jesus tells us to go to further his kingdom on this earth. He tells us to make disciples of all nations, literally all lands. And all people groups. Trust is hard to come by in the world in which we live. All of us have experienced broken relationships. If we're not careful, we allow that to creep into our relationship with God. There are perhaps some of you in this room who are clamoring for the attention of God in the midst of your struggle. Peace eludes you. Because you don't understand who God is. I hope this morning that every person in this room, we have not debated creation. We have not debated the scientific difficulties related to creation. But we have seen who God is. And through all of this, God is calling you into relationship with him. He is powerful supremely powerful and he desires to be the king of your life and it's a good idea why because he's also good he is always good no matter what life brings you see we should have peace knowing that we have seen this god today we should have peace knowing that god is sovereign powerful and in control and we should have peace knowing that he is good Hello, friends. Thanks so much for listening to today's sermon. I really hope it was a blessing to you. If you would like to make a decision or have any questions at all about the message, feel free to reach out to us at our website, firstbaptistcavespring.com. We would love to hear from you there. And also know that we have services every weekend at First Baptist Church of Cave Spring in Cave Spring, Georgia. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you be there with us at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. That's an either an in-person service or we also offer that online. Again, thanks for listening today. I hope you have a blessed week.